Okay, welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. I believe we're on episode 69. We're continuing to read Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We are on the bottom of page 104. Sisterhood between black and white women was indeed possible, and as long as it stood on a firm foundation, as with this remarkable woman and her friends and students, it could give birth to earth-shaking accomplishments. Martilla Minor kept the candle burning that others before her, like the Grimke sisters and Prudence Crandall, had left as a powerful legacy. It cannot have been a mere historical coincidence that so many of the white women who defended their black sisters in the most dangerous of situations were involved in the struggle for education. They must have understood how urgently black women needed to acquire knowledge, a lamp unto their people's feet and a light unto the path toward freedom. Black people who did receive academic instruction inevitably associated their knowledge with their people's collective battle for freedom. As the first year of black schooling in Cincinnati drew to a close, pupils who were asked, quote, what do you think most about, end quote, furnished these answers. First, quote, we are going to be good boys and when we get a man to get the poor slaves from bondage. And I'm sorrow to hear that the boat of Tis- Tiskawala went down with 200 poor slaves. It grieves my heart so that I could faint in one minute. A seven-year-old. Second, quote, what we are studying for is to try to get the yoke of slavery broke and the chains parted asunder and slaveholding cease forever, end quote, 12-year-old. Third, quote, bless the cause of abolition. My mother and stepfather, my sister and myself were all born in slavery. The Lord did let the oppressed go free. Roll on the happy period that all nations shall know the Lord. We thank him for his many blessings. End quote. Eleven year old. Fourth, quote, this is to inform you that I have two cousins in slavery who are entitled to their freedom. They have done everything that the will requires and now they won't let them go. They talk of selling them down the river. If this was your case, what would you do? End quote. Ten year old. <clears throat> the last surviving answer came from a 16 year old attending this new Cincinnati school. It is an extremely fascinating example of the way the students gleaned a contemporary meaning from world history that was as close to home as the desire to be free. Quote, let us look back and see the state in which the Britons and Saxons and Germans lived. They had no learning and had not a knowledge of letters, but not look. Some of them are our first men. Look at King Alfred and see what a great man he was. He at one time did not know his ABCs, but before his death, he commanded armies and nations. He was never discouraged, but always looked forward and studied the harder. I think if the colored people study like King Alfred, they will soon do away the evil of slavery. I can't see how the Americans can call this a land of freedom where so much slavery is. End quote. As far as black people's faith and knowledge was concerned, this 16 year old child said it all. This unquenchable thirst for knowledge was as powerful among the slaves in the South as among their, quote, free, end quote, sisters and brothers in the North. Needless to say, the anti-literacy restrictions of the slave states were far more rigid than in the North. After the Nat Turner Revolt in 1831, legislation prohibiting the education of slaves was strengthened throughout the South. In the words of one slave code, quote, teaching slaves to read and write tends to dis 
excuse me, teaching slaves to read and write tends to dissatisfaction in their minds and to produce insurrection and rebellion, end quote. With the exception of Maryland and Kentucky, every southern state absolutely prohibited the education of slaves. Throughout the South, slaveholders resorted to the lash and the whipping post in order to counter their slaves' irrepressible will to learn. Black people wanted to be educated. Quote, The poignancy of the slaves' struggle for learning appeared everywhere. Frederica Bremer found a young woman desperately trying to read the Bible. Quote, Oh, this book, end quote, she cried out to Miss Bremer. Quote, I turn and turn over its leaves and I wish I understood what is on them. I try and try. I should be so happy if I could read, but I cannot, end quote. Susie King Taylor was a nurse and teacher in the first black regiment of the Civil War. In her autobiography, she described her persistent efforts to educate herself during slavery. White children, sympathetic adults, as well as her grandmother, assisted her to acquire the skills of reading and writing. Like Susie King's mother, excuse me, like Susie King's grandmother, numerous slave women ran great risk as they imparted to their sisters and brothers the academic skills they had secretly procured. Even when they were compelled to convene their schools during the late hours of the night, women who had managed to acquire some knowledge attempted to share with their people. These were some of the early signs, in the North and South alike, of that post-emancipation phenomenon which Dubois called, quote, a frenzy for schools, end quote. Another historian described the ex-slaves' thirst for learning in these words, quote, With the yearning born of centuries of denial, ex-slaves worshipped the sight and sound of the printed word. Old men and women on the edge of the grave could be seen in the dark of the night, poring over the scripture by the light of a pine knot, painfully spelling out the sacred words, end quote. According to yet another historian, quote, Many educators reported that they found a keener desire to learn among the Negro children of the Reconstruction South than among white children in the North. End quote. About half of the volunteer teachers who joined the massive educational campaign organized by the Freedmen's Bureau were women. Northern white women went south during Reconstruction to assist their black sisters who were absolutely determined to wipe out illiteracy among the millions of former slaves. The dimensions of this task were Herculean. According to Dubois, the prevailing illiteracy rate was 95 percent. In the histories chronicling the Reconstruction era and in the historical accounts of the women's rights movement, the experiences of black and white women working together in the struggle for education have received sparse attention. Judging, however, from the articles in the Freedmen's Record, these teachers undoubtedly inspired each other and were themselves inspired by their students. Almost universally mentioned in their white teachers' observation was the former slaves' unyielding commitment to knowledge. In the words of a teacher working in Raleigh, North Carolina, quote, It is surprising to me to see the amount of suffering which many of the people endure for the sake of sending their children to school. End quote. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Uh, material comfort was unhesitatingly sacrificed for the furtherance of educational progress. Quote, a pile of books is seen in almost every cabin, though there be no furniture except a poor bed, a table and two or three broken chairs. End quote. As teachers, the black and white women seem to have developed a profound and intense mutual appreciation. A white woman working in Virginia, for example, was immensely impressed by the work of a black woman teacher who had just emerged from slavery. Quote, it 
seems almost a miracle, end quote, this white woman exclaimed that, quote, a colored woman who had been a slave up to the time of the surrender would succeed in a vocation to her so novel, end quote. In the reports she offered, excuse me, in the reports she authored, the black woman in question expressed sincere, though by no means servile, gratitude for the work of her, quote, friends from the north, end quote. By the time of the Hayes betrayal and the overthrow of radical reconstruction, the accomplishments in education had become one of the most powerful proofs of progress during that potentially revolutionary era. Fisk University, Hampton Institute, and several other black colleges and universities have been established in the post-Civil War South. Some 247,333 pupils were attending 4,329 schools, and these were the building blocks for the South's first public school system, which would benefit black and white children alike. Although the post-Reconstruction period and the attendant rise of Jim Crow education drastically diminished black people's educational opportunities, the impact of the Reconstruction experience cannot be entirely obliterated. The dream of land was shattered for the time being, and the hope for political equality waned. But the beacon of knowledge was not easily extinguished, and this was the guarantee that the fight for land and for political power would unrelentingly go on. Quote, Had it not been for the Negro school and college, the Negro would, to all intents and purposes, have been driven back to slavery. His Reconstruction leadership had come from Negroes educated in the North and white politicians capitalists, and philanthropic teachers. The counter-revolution of 1876 drove most of these, save the teachers, away. But already, through establishing public schools and private colleges, and by organizing the Negro church, the Negro had acquired enough leadership and knowledge to thwart the worst designs of the new slave drivers. End quote. Aided by their white sister allies, black women played an indispensable role in creating this new fortress. The history of women's struggle for education in the United States reached a true peak when black and white women together led the post-Civil War battle against illiteracy in the South. Their unity and solidarity preserved and confirmed one of our history's most fruitful promises. And then that brings us to the end of Chapter 6, Education and Liberation, Education and Liberation, Black Women's Perspective. And here, let's take a moment to reflect on some of those things in that chapter. I think the importance of of education, the importance of literacy is something that stands out heavily from the that chapter that we just read. I think that we live in a in a in a time now where because there is there is no legal parameters or no legal hindrances to stop certain groups of people from becoming uh, literate, from becoming educated, from gaining knowledge. I think that sometimes it's uh, we we devalue or de-emphasize the importance of knowledge, de-emphasize the importance of reading, the importance of information. But I think that we we must take advantage of living in what is deemed the information age. We must take advantage as as black people and as as women pointed out here specifically, take advantage of the opportunity that we have to to acquire knowledge that people who look like us or people who would be put in the same categories as us, 
years ago would not have had the opportunity to uh, to do to gain. And I think that one of the reasons we we have to be adamant about trying to attain this knowledge and gain this knowledge and being adamant about exercising this right to knowledge and this right to education that we that we have, that people have died for us to have, that people have been in prison for us to have is because that is the building blocks to organizing and organizing is one of the building blocks to uh, uh, to properly absolving the issues that exist in this society when it comes to exploitation and oppression and marginalization and subjugation and and all of these different things as long as the people who are being marginalized and the people who are being exploited and oppressed remain ignorant the exploitation and the oppression and the marginalization it continues and if 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 nothing else it grows and it is the only way to push that back the only way to 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 limit the exploitation that is going on the oppression that is going on is to first inform yourself about the exploitation and oppression inform yourself about the roots of where those things lie and then uh, begin to educate yourself on ways to to properly deal with those things and and I think one of the other things that's important in here that was pointed out is how these women would specifically speaking about women who were ex-slaves and black and black women would get this knowledge and then would give it back to their people. That's something that was inherently uh, important of the civil rights era that would uh, also come up here in about in 1954 to 1968. Right now we're at the end of the 1800s. But that was one of that's one of the key parts, even during uh, earlier periods of slavery. One person would learn how to read, learn how to write. And they would then go back to the plantation or go go to other slaves that were in the area and they would teach them how to read and how to write you know, as reconstruction is as the and this as we were just reading here as it was chronic chronicled as reconstruction was was being put together it people would one person would learn how to read and write and they would uh, extrapolate that information and that knowledge to other sets of people and so I think that that is uh, another thing that's important about education and, and, and reading and writing and is that it allows an opportunity to engage in collectivism. What something that you may learn individually, you can then collectively disperse out to uh, multiple people from the community or from the uh, the the class that you are uh, a part of. <clears throat> and then again, uh, the one of the things that is impossible to overlook is the the solidarity that was in, in existence between some of the white women of the north who were coming down and the black women who were already in the south and how they were working together to absolve the, their society of the residual effects of slavery I think that that's one of the things that also is that is pointed out in here is in this chapter, you see one of the specific residual effects of slavery. And that is a lack of knowledge, a lack of education, a lack of opportunities to get to knowledge and education, the impediments that were put up to uh, hinder uh, black people from getting to knowledge and education. And. Uh, and then and then one and then that last in that last page, one of the things that was also pointed out is the importance that reconstruction and the importance that the desire for black education had on the public school system that existed in the South, how the the these 
schools and these colleges and these people coming from the north to come to the south to educate ex-slaves, how important that was to creating the public school system, which not only benefited black people, but also benefited poor white people. And so, again, as we've seen throughout the entirety of this book, the black liberation movement has had uh, positive effects for all types of different groups in the society. And so I think that, again, is something that we have to keep in the forefront is that these these struggles for liberation, these struggles for equitable stances in a society have positive effects, not just on the one specific group that it may be for, but a lot of times on other groups that deal with uh, covert similarities in their existence in the society. Okay, let's let's see Beginning chapter seven, I like I've been trying to keep these chapters chapters together, but yeah, we just gonna go. All right, chapter seven, woman's suffrage at the turn of the century, the rising influence of racism. One morning, Susan B. Anthony had engagements in the city which would prevent her from using the stenographer whom she had engaged. She remarked at the breakfast table that I could use the stenographer to help me with my correspondence since she had to be away all morning and that she would tell her when she went upstairs to come in and let me dictate some letters to her. When I went upstairs to my room, I waited for her to come in. When she did not do so, I concluded she didn't find it convenient and went on writing my letters in longhand. When Miss Anthony returned, she came to my room and found me busily engaged. Quote, you don't care to use my secretary? I suppose I told her to come to your room when you came upstairs. Didn't she come? I said no. She said no more, but turned and went into her office. Within 10 minutes, she was back again in my room. The door being open, she walked in and said, quote, well, she's gone, end quote. And I said, quote, who, end quote. She said, quote, the stenographer, end quote. I said, quote, going where? End quote. Quote, why? She said, I went into the office and said to her, you didn't tell Miss Wells what I said about writing some letters for her? End quote. The girl said, quote, no, I didn't. End quote. Quote, well, why not? End quote. Then the girl said, quote, it is all right for you, Miss Anthony, to treat Negroes as equals, but I refuse to take dictation from a colored woman. End quote. Quote, Indeed, end quote, said Miss Anthony, quote, then, end quote, she said, quote, you needn't take any more dictations from me. Miss Wells is my guest and any insult to her is an insult to me. So if that is the way you feel about it, you needn't stay any longer, end quote. This interchange between Susan B. Anthony and Ida B. Wells, who later founded the first black women's suffrage club, occurred during those, quote, Precious days in which I sat at the feet of this pioneer and veteran in the work of woman suffrage, end quote. Wells's admiration for Anthony's individual stance against racism was undeniable and her respect for the suffragists' contributions to the women's rights campaign was profound. But she unhesitatingly criticized her white sister for failing to make her personal fight against racism a public issue of the suffrage movement. Susan B. Anthony was never lacking in praises for Frederick Douglass, consistently reminding people that he was the first man to publicly advocate the enfranchisement of women. She considered him a lifetime honorary member of her suffrage organization. Yet, 
as Anthony explained to Wells. She pushed Douglas aside for the sake of recruiting white Southern women into the movement for women's suffrage. Quote, in our conventions, he was the honored guest who sat on our platform and spoke at our gatherings. But when the Suffrage Association went to Atlanta, Georgia, knowing the feeling of the South with regard to Negro participation on equality with whites, I asked Mr. Douglas not to come. I did not want to subject, subject him to humiliation. And I did not want anything to get in the way of bringing the Southern white women into our suffrage association. End quote. In this particular conversation with Ida B. Wells, Anthony went on to explain that she had also refused to support the efforts of several black women who wanted to form a branch of the suffrage association. She did not want to awaken the anti-black hostility of her white Southern members who might withdraw from the organization if black women were admitted. Quote. And you think I was wrong in so doing? End quote, she asked. I answered uncompromisingly yes, for I felt that although she may have gained... what, My fault, let me try that again. Quote, and you think I was wrong in so doing? End quote, she asked. I answered uncompromisingly yes, for I felt that although she may have made gains for suffrage, she had also confirmed white women in their attitude of segregation. End quote. This conversation between Ida B. Wells and Susan B. Anthony took place in 1894. Anthony's self-avowed capitulation to racism, quote, on the ground of expediency, end quote, characterized her public stance on this issue until she resigned in 1900 from the presidency of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. When Wells admonished Anthony for legitimizing the Southern white women's commitment to segregation, the underlying question was far more consequential than Anthony's individual attitude. Racism was objectively on the rise during this period and the rights and lives of black people were at stake. By 1894, the disenfranchisement of black people in the South, the legal system of segregation and the reign of lynch law were already well established. More than at any other time since the Civil War, this was an era demanding consistent and principled protest against racism. The increasingly influential, quote, expediency, end quote, argument proposed by Anthony and her colleagues was a feeble justification for the suffragists' indifference to the pressing requirements of the times. In 1888, Mississippi enacted a series of statutes legalizing racial segregation. And by 1890, that state had ratified a new constitution which robbed black people of the vote. Following Mississippi's example, other southern states framed new constitutions which guaranteed the disenfranchisement of black men. South Carolina's constitution was adopted in 1898, followed by North Carolina and Alabama in 1901, and Virginia, Georgia, and Oklahoma in 1902, 1908, and 1918, respectively. Ida B. Wells' uncompromising criticism of Susan B. Anthony's public indifference towards racism was certainly justified by the prevailing social conditions but something far deeper than historical evidence was involved. Just two years before the two women's debate on suffrage and racism, Wells had suffered a traumatic first-hand encounter with racist mob violence. The three victims of Memphis's first lynching since the riots of 1866 were personal friends of hers. The horrible incident itself inspired Wells to investigate and expose the accelerating pattern of mob murders throughout the southern states. Traveling in England in 1893, Seeking support for her crusade against lynching, she vigorously decried the silence with which hundreds and thousands of mob murders have been received. Quote, in the past 10 years, 
Over a thousand black men and women and children have met this violent death at the hands of a white mob. And the arrest of America has remained silent. The pulpit and press of our country remain silent on these continued outrages and the voices of my race thus tortured and outraged is stifled or ignored wherever it is lifted in a, in America a de, in a demand for justice. Excuse me. I, 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 I messed up over that last paragraph. I'm gonna read that one more time and then we're going to take them up. We'll end this episode and I'll, I'll reflect on some of the things we read. Quote, in the past 10 years, over a thousand black men and women and children have met this violent death at the hands of a white mob. And the rest of America has remained silent. The pulpit and press of our country remain silent on these continued outrages and the voice of my race thus tortured and outraged is stifled or ignored wherever it is lifted in America in a demand for justice. End quote. I think that that last that last paragraph right there is something that it could be read as very true about uh, police killings. And one of the things that's and not just police killings, but police killings and in custody deaths. And one of the things that alters the issues that we're dealing with now or, or makes the issues that we're dealing with now different from issues that have dealt in the past were dealt with in the past is that there are more people from other groups who uh, deal with some of these negative aspects. And so where it was a time when the the violence in our and the, the violence that is in the society is what has to be held uh, at the at the highest has to be held the most accountable is the violence that is perpetuated in the society as has been perpetuated in the society since the society's inception, since the genocide of the indigenous people here and the enslavement of the uh, Africans that were brought here. But when we begin to speak about Jim Crow, when we begin to speak about the end of the 1800s, early 1900s and Jim Crow justice that was happening, the type of lynchings that were happening in the streets, that was a, an outlet for the violence that were, was in the society to be released. And it was done in a way that was specifically uh, on black people and, and, and or uniquely on black people and, and disproportionately on black people. Overwhelming majority was done on black people and people of color. <clears throat> but as we further into, as we get further into the present day, some of the ways in which racism existed don't exist currently in the same manner. There is this effort for things for a colorblind society. And so when the type of violence that is in the society manifests now, it's not done with the same overwhelming majority to black people, but it is still done disproportionately to black people and it is still done. And so the type of lynchings that used to happen in the, these mob violence, these mob lynchings that used to have, have now manifested themselves in things like, uh, police killings and police shootings and the same way that Ida B. Wells talked about how the voices of the people, the black people who were enduring these Jim Crow lynchings, these mob, this mob violence, how their voices were stifled and they weren't uh, heard and listened to. And there was this complacency in the country about this issue. The same thing is true and has been true for a long time about police killings, where the voice of the people who deal with these police killings are stifled. And there is a, uh, a complacency in our country when it comes to these things uh, for the past uh, six years that at least when since the Washington Post has been 
uh, documenting police killings. Uh, on average, three people a day are killed by the police. On average, 900, uh, 900 to 1,000 people a year are killed uh, by the police. And it's something that is uh, treated as if it's a, a, a non-issue. And again, the people who disproportionately end up being victims of the police are black people and, and people of color in general. And uh, poor white people, those are the overwhelming majority of the people whose lives are taken by the police. And in the country that we live in, all of those groups of people uh, have a our voices are stifled. And uh, and so I think that one of the things that is important about education, as was pointed out in the previous chapter that we read in this episode, is that 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 education and, and informing ourselves can work towards building this type of solidarity that is needed to combat these issues. None of these, no individual or no individual groups will be able to combat the the issues that exist in our society when it comes to police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. And it is true that each one of those three issues affects different collectives of, of, of people in this society. And so the only way we will be able to adequately absolve these issues is by being able to point out how we are all covertly connected to these issues. And and so and and, and again the people who are profiting and uh perpetuating these issues don't want people to be able to be educated, don't want people to be able to be informed and to be able to uh, uh build that type of solidarity. <laughs> Uh, and I think one of the other things that stands out here, too, as we begin to speak more about Ida B. Wells, and I, I think I've, I appreciate very much the different historical figures that Angela Davis has brought into this piece of literature. But one of the other and the timeline is I think is very important as we continue to go down the timeline, you get to see just exactly how. Every time two steps forward were, was taken by black people and by black women specifically, there would be three steps backward or four steps backwards that would that would follow very shortly after. But the Ida B. Wells points out the hypocrisy of Susan B. Anthony's ideology, where Susan B. Anthony is clearly understands the dangers of racism and the ignorance of racism because of the fact that she fired the woman who wouldn't uh uh, speak to Ida B. Wells or who disrespected Ida B. Wells just off the uh, basis of her skin. She championed Frederick Douglass and was uh, uh, a comrade of Frederick Douglass. But when it became politically, when it was, when it became politically advantageous for her to mimic racist ideologies, she mimicked those racist ideologies. And there is no way to be, in the words of Ibram Kennedy, you're either racist or anti-racist. There is no in-between. And you can't be anti-racist sometimes and then racist other times. Or anti-racist when it behooves you and then racist when it behooves you. Uh, it just, you simply are racist. There there can be no anti-racist on Monday and then racist on Tuesday. And so we see here how often how often individuals or how often... In the past, individuals would uh, would change their or not even change their ideology, would have an ideology that was not anti-racist because of the fact that they felt that it would not be advantageous for them to be anti-racist in all aspects. And so when it was time to get rid of slavery, when it was time to be an abolitionist, Ida Bell's 
uh, Ida B. Wells, uh, Susan B. Anthony, excuse me, was anti-racist. But when, when it was time to try to gain women's suffrage, uh, when it was time to try to get more white women to have the to be part of her organization, she would mimic and repeat the same type of racist actions that other people in that time was doing. And and that is what had what led to things like segregation being so strong and reconstruction uh, being torn down is because it wasn't enough people of goodwill willing to sacrifice and do what may be politically disadvantageous, uh, even even though it was the morally correct thing to do. So let's we'll end this episode right there. We'll return tomorrow with another episode of Rock for Reading Daily and we'll finish up chapter seven of Angela Y. Davis's Women, Race, and Class. All right, share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present everybody the opportunity to either begin or further their struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice.